Alright, today we're going to talk about the end of Mark's Gospel. Alright? And Ryan gave you a little bit of a teaser of this last week. The way that we do things, the bread and butter at Grace Community Church, the way that we do things is we go through passages of Scripture together. Um, books of the Bible. And so, start in one place, pick up with it the next week. Okay? Well, Ryan told you last week... Um, he gave you a little bit of a teaser on this that most Bible scholars believe that Mark's gospel ends at verse 8. Okay? And what that means is that today is going to be a little bit different of a type of sermon. And here's what I'm saying. If this is your first time here, you manage to come the only time that we will ever preach on a text of Scripture that might not even be in the Bible. Okay? So congratulations for that uh, timing there. Okay, so I say that, you know, halfway joking. We are certainly going to pack Bible all into this, but it is going to be a little bit different. We're going to bounce around to several different places today. All right, and before we dig into verse 9 through verse 20, I'm going to camp out again in verse 8, because if this gospel ends in verse 8, we need to learn this lesson well. We need to respond well to this. And so I want to remind us of some things, and I want to encourage you. Ryan talked about these things last week, and I want to encourage you to go back and listen to them. Go back and listen to them. So verse 8, Mark chapter 16, says this. And remember, many say, most say, that this is the end to this gospel. And it's very surprising. Mark chapter 16, verse 8, let's read it. It says, And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. And so here's the thing that I want to underline for us. Most likely, the Holy Spirit ends this gospel with the disciples in shock and awe towards the resurrected Christ. Okay, That's where He ends it. It's like a cliffhanger. Dropping off a cliff. And He leaves us with these disciples and shock and awe. And what this means is this is supposed to provoke something in the reader. Mark didn't do this just for no reason. It has design in it. There's design in this gospel. And I believe that many in the early church, obviously they didn't see this. They didn't understand what Mark was intended to communicate because they added endings to it. And we'll talk about that later. They added ending to it. You don't add an ending to something you understand. Okay? So they didn't understand something, and I don't want us to be guilty of the same thing. We need to understand what Mark is trying to communicate in this passage. So I want you to think about what this, mean, what this ending of Mark means to us, to you. Okay? He does this for a reason. And what's happening here is Mark is showing us what it looks like when you or anybody else really gets the resurrection of Christ. When you really get it, what does it look like? And he gives you a picture of this here. Now, this is so important for us. And I'll just tell you, many times you've heard me say this, you've heard other people say this. Many times I've reminded you of the difference in understanding facts about Jesus and, and 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, beholding the glory of Christ, the glory of the Lord. There's a Pacific Ocean of a difference between those two things. Of you knowing things about Jesus and you beholding His glory. Okay, You've heard me say this many times. And I want to give you a quote that helped me to greatly understand the difference between these two things. Okay, This is a guy named Archibald Alexander. Old school, 1800, started Princeton Seminary. This is from his book, Thoughts on Religious Experience. I want you to listen closely to this, okay? It's going to help us to frame this up. He says, There are two kinds of religious knowledge which are intimately connected as cause and effect, but nevertheless they are distinguishable from one another. Listen close. The two kinds of knowledge, the first is the knowledge of the truth revealed in the Holy Scripture. And then he says the second is the effect, the impression that that truth makes on the human mind when it's rightly apprehended. He's calling that two different types of religious knowledge. And then he says this. He gives you a word picture to help us understand. He said the first type of knowledge can be compared to an inscription on a seal. And the second type of knowledge can be compared to the impression that that seal makes in hot wax. And so I want you to understand this analogy. Okay, 
That man of God just compared the truth of God's Word like a signet ring. Okay? And what he just told all of us is that the truth of God's Word has not done its job until you smash that signet ring in some hot wax and it makes its impression. That is the difference between knowing facts about Jesus and beholding the glory of Christ. Are we together? You with me? Okay, we want to go after the second kind, the truth of God's Word making its impression on us. So I want you to see this. I want to give you some examples of how this works. This is a warning for us that we would not stop. We love the Word of God, but this is a warning that we don't stop for intellectual only knowledge. Take the cross, for example. Okay, I want you to think about this. Understanding that Jesus died for your sins on the cross understanding that Jesus died as the substitutionary sacrifice for your sins, understanding that Jesus' death is a curse-bearing death, and He's swallowing the wrath of God for us, understanding all those things is, is an incomplete, if that's all you do is understand it, that is an incomplete response to the death of Jesus. And you say, what do you mean? A complete response is always going to be the affections. His death demands that we trust Him, that we worship Him. And so think about this. How do you know if you really get the cross? How do you know if you really get it? Okay? You need to understand something about sound doctrine and about what the Bible teaches about what happened in that event. But how do you know you really get it? Is when the truth of God's Word pierces you and cuts you from the inside. And you're humbled at the cross and you bow down and you worship Jesus. Does that make sense? That's how you really know you get it. That it raises the affections. The Spirit shows you the glory of the cross. Now I want you to take that same thought, that same thought, and I want us to walk it into the resurrection of Jesus. Same same thoughts that we have towards the cross to the resurrection of Jesus. And I believe that this is especially important for us to take heed to this warning regarding the resurrection And the reason I say this is for this reason, okay? The resurrection is the numero uno defense of Christianity. It's the number one, the highest proof, the highest defense that we have to an unbelieving world is the Christ that we worship came flying out of the empty tomb. No body found. Word of God says He was raised from the dead. All the evidence points that He's raised from the dead and the church for 2,000 years has preached Jesus as raised from the dead. One true God in a sea of false gods. That's the numero uno, right? It's a proof. And what I mean by that is because it is so powerful. It's not the only defense to Christianity, but it's the highest. And because it is so powerful, we learn to do what? We learn to explain it. We learn to present the evidence. We learn to make our case before an unbelieving world. And we stack it deep and we stack it deep and we say, what are you going to do with this evidence that He came out of the tomb? Does that make sense? And we should rightly do that. We need to know how to do that. But here's the warning. That we stop there. That we stop right there. That we learn how to present the evidence. That we learn how to present the proof. And we stop. I think this is especially a warning with the resurrection. And what I want us to see is that if you stop there, that is an incomplete response to the resurrection of Jesus. And I want you to think about this. What does it look like for a human being to really get it? To really get it? To really lay hold that this Christ slaughtered for our sins, raised from the dead. Forever raised from the dead. What does that look like? It looks like verse 8 in Mark's Gospel. Let's read it again. There's a phrase in verse 8. Just look at the descriptions here. Verse 8, and they went out and they fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. That's literally a word picture that they just got arrested by something called astonishment. They are now out of their minds, blown at what has just happened. Okay, This is the description of what it really looks like when you get the resurrection of Jesus. The affections explode to Christ. Okay, Do you understand this? This is that second kind of knowledge when the resurrection pierces a human soul. So I want us to get this. This is how Mark ends this gospel. And what what that means is this. If we don't get this, we we don't get how he ends it. 
Okay? We don't get how He ends it. Unless you are experiencing out of your mind astonishment to Jesus, you are not seeing Him rightly. If you're bold to Christ, if you're cold to Him, you are blinded to His glory. You are not seeing Him rightly. And so I want us to think about this. I don't want us to be this... The same as the early church that was blind to this. They thought this was a weird ending. This is not a weird ending. This is a design. And so you think about this. Matthew ends his gospel with a mission. Okay? And the, and the takeaway is work for this Christ. Okay? They worship Him and He sends them out on the Great Commission in Matthew 28. And the takeaway is work for this Christ. Mark doesn't do that. Mark doesn't do that. Mark highlights something different. The highlight that Mark gives us is worship this Christ. Look at this resurrected one in all of His glory. And, you know, even a year ago, uh, we, we talked about the intro to Mark and we called this the immediately gospel. The most common word in this gospel is like He's got, you know, ADD and immediately this and immediately this and immediately Jesus does this and they praise Jesus for this and immediately He does this. And so you get to the end of the immediately gospel and He drops us off a cliff. And I want to call this the hand over the mouth gospel. That's where he leaves us in astonishment to this Christ. Can't even speak. Arrested by astonishment to this Christ. Hand over the mouth gospel. I, when, I, when I'm preaching this to myself, that's what I'm preaching to myself. Dustin, you're not seeing him rightly until you're out of your mind astonished to this Christ. And that's what I want us to go for. That's what I want, how I want us to respond to Jesus. We need to hear this. We need the power of the Holy Spirit to pierce us with His Word. So think about this. We have spent over a year in this Gospel. Don't waste hearing sermons. Don't waste your Bible exposition, right? How do you know that this journey through Mark's Gospel has profited you? How do you know? Here's a question for you to consider. Here's a question for you to think about. In the last month of your life, how many times... Have you beholded the glory of Christ? How many times in the past four weeks of your life has your attention been arrested and you've been astonished at the Lord Jesus? Nobody around in that quiet place and you just launch out in praise to God that there is none like you, Lord Jesus, Lord of all the earth. Unless this is happening, we fail to respond rightly to who Jesus is. He is the resurrected Lord of glory. So I want you to mark this on your outline. Point number one. We serve a glorious, mouth-stopping, fear-producing, astonishing Christ. And this demands that we worship Him. That we bow down and worship this Christ. Point number one on your outline. Alright? That was the introduction. And now we're going to switch gears from verse 8. We're going to switch gears. And today, today's going to be an equipping day. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. Church leaders, they lead. Jesus has given leaders to the church to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Today, I'm going after that. I want you to learn how to handle difficulties in the Word of God. Okay? So this is going to be a little bit different. Okay? We're going to walk through a lot about manuscripts today. And so I want to deal with this textual issue at the end of Mark, but I want to do this under a broader umbrella of something called the doctrine of the inerrancy of Scripture. And the reason I want to do this is because the last thing that I want to happen today is that we walk out of here with less confidence in our Bibles and the Word of God. We're actually going after the exact opposite of that. That we walk out of here more confident that we have what God wrote. Okay, so we're going we're gonna to unpack this, the doctrine of the inerrancy of Scripture. So here's, here's our foundation for this. As Christians, real ones, we believe in a body of absolute revealed truth that God recorded in a book. Our God wrote a book. Amen? 2 Timothy 3.16 all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. The true church of Jesus has always affirmed that. Always. And I'll tell you something. I was scratching my brain over this. For the first 1,500 years of Christianity, even the heretics believed in the inerrancy of Scripture. 
So for the, I mean, they interpret it wrong and they said heretical things. But for 1,500 years, nobody said, well, that's not really the Word of God. Okay, I was just, I was just blown by that. Okay, in the last 500 years, this doctrine, especially in the last 100 years, this doctrine has assaulted the church, the attacks on the inerrancy of the Word of God. The inerrancy of Scripture simply means this, that the Bible is without error. No errors in the Word of God. Psalm, let's stack some text on top of this. The Bible claims this about himself. This is not a man, okay? Psalm 12, verse 6. Listen close. The words of the Lord are pure words. Like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. Psalm 119, verse 160. We just read this a minute ago. Listen to this. The sum of your word is truth. And every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Let's get Jesus' take on the word of God. John 17, 17. Your word is truth. John 17, 17. Proverbs 30, verse 5. Every word of God proves true. You see a theme here. The Bible claims that it is absolute truth from God. Absolutely pure. And what that means is there's no falsehood, no impurity. Okay? And we need to learn how to help people navigate legitimate questions. And one of the legitimate questions is this. Men wrote the Bible. Like even you said, you know, Paul wrote, Paul wrote Romans. Men wrote the Bible. And we say amen to that. That is, that is true. It's a half-truth, but it's true. Okay? Men did write the Bible, and we affirm that. But we affirm 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21. One qualification. Men wrote the Bible. Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So this is, this, this is a very important detail. That the Bible teaches us that men recorded the words of God under the guidance and the influence of God the Holy Spirit. And this came out, the Scriptures came out in such a way that they are forever protected from error. There's no errors in the Bible. Here's a helpful analogy for you. The inspiration of Scripture, and this way that I'm about to highlight, is very similar to the doctrine of the incarnation of Jesus. And I want you to think about this. The Holy Spirit comes upon Mary, and a baby's born named Mighty God. And one of the things that we affirm about Jesus is He's never sinned. He's sinless. No sin nature in Jesus, right? So just like the Holy Spirit comes upon Mary and you have sinless Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes upon the biblical authors and you have a sinless record of what God said. That's the analogy. The, the Holy Spirit protected the Word of God from error. This is the inerrancy of Scripture. Jesus believed this. And that ought to settle it for every Christian in the room. Okay, Preach this to yourself. The resurrected God-man said that the Bible was perfect and can never be broken. So next time the, the line comes, attacks the Word of God, you preach that to yourself. The resurrected God-man told me that the Bible is perfect and can never be broken. John chapter 10, verse 35, Jesus says this. This phrase is awesome. He says, Scriptures cannot be broken. Jesus said that. Jesus said that. It cannot be broken. We have an indestructible Bible. And I want you to think about this. The Bible teaches us that Jesus is tempted in every way that we are, yet without sin. I just want to ask you this. Do you, do you really think that there were textual difficulties in the Hebrew text of Scripture when Jesus opens His mouth and says, Scripture, never be broken. Man shall not live by bread alone. Every word that comes from the mouth of God. Not an iota will pass away. Heaven and earth will pass away before these words pass away. Surely He was aware of these things. Surely He was, tempted as we are, yet without sin. And yet in the middle of that culture in the middle of those temptations, he opens his mouth and he says, Scripture's perfect. Never be broken. Jesus said that. That ought to settle it for us. His doctrine of Scripture is an inerrant word. 
And I just want to encourage you with something. You need to be on the lookout. And you need to be on the lookout for this today when you leave this place. Satan has been attacking the Word of God since Genesis chapter 3. And he will do this consistently in your life. Consistently. And this needs to be firm in your mind that we have an inerrant Word from God. If you let Satan in your mind on this issue, he will wreak havoc in your life. Havoc. Absolute chaos in your life. He will attack the Word of God. So I want this to be clear. If we reject inerrancy, and I don't know anybody in here that's even in danger of doing that, but I want to show you what's at stake. If we reject inerrancy, at least three consequences immediately follow. Okay? Number one. If you reject inerrancy of Scripture, you can never know any truth whatsoever. You forfeit it. You forfeit knowing any truth whatsoever. If you remove the only body of absolute truth ever given to humanity, divine revelation, all you are left with for the rest of your life is human speculation. You can never know truth. That means everything's up for grabs in that moment. Number one. Number two. You charge the God of truth with error. And now, now we're, we're face to face with blasphemy. The God who can never lie, the God of truth, you charge Him with error when you charge His words with error. Number three, you claim to be smarter than the resurrected God-man. Think of how much pride there is in that. That we know what Jesus said about the Bible, but you have your polished opinions that are different than Jesus. You claim to be smarter than Jesus. This person rejects the truth of God and replaces it with their own version. And that's no different than idolatry. That's no different. That is Another way to say that is, is the one who rejects inerrancy, they become their own God. That is, a, that is a hundred miles an hour path to destruction, to eternal destruction. So do you see what's at stake if we say, ah, oh, you know, some errors in the book. You see what's at stake here? So, we say this at the church of Jesus. And I want to encourage you with this this morning. We say emphatically, loudly. If I can make you believe it, how loud I was screaming, I'd scream at the top of my lungs. There are no errors in the Bible. None. We say this emphatically. There are no errors in the Word of God. Amen? Amen. If you're soft on that, you need to talk to some brothers and sisters. Do not let Satan kick this around in your mind. Okay? So we say this emphatically. And then the very next sentence, we say in humility, in humility. So we just said something with boldness. You know, we step forward with boldness. And then we back up in humility. And we are not saying that everything in the Bible is easy to understand. We're not saying that. So in humility, we confess that there are certainly, certainly difficulties to sort out. Certainly difficulties to sort out. And today we're going to talk about a specific type of difficulty called a textual variant. Okay? Y'all ready? Alright. A textual variant is what happens when two manuscripts of, the, manuscripts of the Scriptures are not in exact agreement. Alright? That's a textual variant. Now, most textual variants deal with something very minute. Think about an accent mark on a word or something like a comma in, in the English language or a certain letter in a Greek word is different. Very, very, very minute. Okay? Most of them. But there are three larger textual variants in the New Testament. Mark chapter 16, 11 verses. John chapter 8, the story with Jesus and the woman caught in adultery, 12 verses. And then there's one sentence in 1 John chapter 5. Many people call this the Johannine comma. Okay, So that's three. And the reason I share that with you is let's quantify this thing. Let's not let Satan run wild in your mind. When we talk about disputed variants in the New Testament, we're not talking about this unlimited number of things. We're talking about three things. Three things in the Word of God. Okay, Don't let Satan play football in your brain. Three passages of Scripture that are significant variants. Alright? And we're going to talk about one of these today. The ending of Mark. Now, I want to confess something to you on the front end. 
unless I was committed, we were committed to teaching through passages of Scripture, you would never, books of the Bible, start to finish, pick up where you left off. Unless I was committed to that, Ryan was committed to that, we as a church were committed to that, you would never hear a sermon from me on this text. Ever. I can't imagine a preacher waking up and saying, I know what I really want to give the people of God today, a sermon on why a passage in the Bible might not be in the Bible. Okay? So this is another example of how a commitment to walk through books of the Bible forces you as a teacher of the Word of God to deal with things that you never would before. Does that make sense? Alright, and, the, and then the effect on the church. The church needs to learn how to navigate difficulties like this. So we need to learn what to do with things in our Bible like this. So this is what we're going after. The original manuscripts of the Bible, they're called the autographs, they're gone. They're gone. The original paper that Paul put the pen to. Okay, And don't think about it as a bad thing. Think about that as a good thing and a gift from God because we are hardwired to worship images. You even see the Old Testament saints do that. Okay, With the rod uh, that buds, uh, Aaron's rod that buds, the brazen serpent. And, and so it is actually probably a good thing that we don't have the original copy of Romans or any other book in the Bible. So all we're left with are these copies of the original, and these copies contain some variation. I want you to hang with me for a minute. We're going somewhere, okay? Copies contain variation. And the question that I want us to learn how to deal with today is what do you do with this? How do you resolve a textual variant in the inerrant Word of God? Okay? How do you resolve this? And the answer is textual criticism. You never have to say that to anybody you meet in your life. Okay? I'm just trying to help you think through these things. Textual criticism. This is the study of the biblical manuscripts, those copies. The study to determine the authentic text of the Bible. Now I want to give you a disclaimer. This field of biblical studies, textual criticism, has been thoroughly abused for about a hundred years. And you got flaming liberals publishing massive volumes on why, you know, this book is, is, is actually not written by Paul. It's written by a guy named, you know, whoever. This has been highly abused, this, this field of textual criticism. Okay? They have basically invented a completely secular study of the biblical manuscripts. But I want to encourage you with this. In its purest form, textual criticism, in its purest form, in the hands of men and women of God, men and women who love God, this is a good thing. This is a good thing. These are scholars that love God seeking to determine the original text of the Word of God. And they do this in three ways. Three ways. First, they compare all the copies against one another. Second, they compare the outside sources. That's called extra-biblical evidence. And third, they analyze the variants themselves. That's the internal evidence. So I want us to walk through these and let's learn how to deal with some things, some difficulties in your Bible. First step, comparing the manuscripts. This is the most important step by far, comparing the manuscripts. And I, I want to share two things with you. There's two things about this that need to stick out to you. Takeaways. The number of manuscripts and the dates of the manuscripts. All right? If, we, if I didn't hate telling you to repeat stuff to one another, I'd tell you to repeat that. Okay? Number of manuscripts and the date of the manuscripts. This is awesome. I want to share this with you. This is awesome. This is an awesome thing to know of what God has done. Okay? Number of manuscripts and the dates of the manuscripts. The number of biblical manuscripts is comparatively astronomical. Astronomical. All right? You need to understand the magnitude of this. We have over 5,600 Greek manuscripts of the Scriptures. And you say, man, where are you from? I thought you said astronomical. No, I said comparatively astronomical. 5,600 copies of the Greek manuscripts, and that will never mean anything to you until you know this. Okay? There is nothing. This is awesome. There's nothing in all of history in any form of a book, anything written in all of history that can even begin to compare with the amount of manuscript evidence that we have for the Word of God. Number two on the list, Bible's number one, 5,600. Number two on the list, 
is a book by a guy named Homer. It's called the Iliad. Some of you might have read that at some point in your life. Guess how many copies? Bible, 5,600. Number two, 645. And number three drops off the cliff after that. Isn't that awesome? We have ten times the amount of manuscript evidence for the Word of God than any other book that has ever existed. I praise God for that. I praise God for that. Number two, the dates of these manuscripts. The dates of these manuscripts. We have biblical manuscripts that stretch back into the second and the third century. Okay? And that puts these manuscripts within 100 to 150 years of when the original was written, like the Gospel of John or the Letter to the Romans. Does that make sense? So we have copies that are, that are within 100 to 150 years of the original copies. Number two on the list. There's nothing that compares to this in number or in date. Number two on the list, Homer's Iliad. The oldest copy of the Iliad that we have is 1,000 years after the original. I want you to get this in your brain. We have ten times the evidence, and the evidence is ten times better for the Word of God than any other book that has ever existed, any other ancient work. So as Christians, we have the most and the oldest manuscript evidence for our book. This is encouraging. This is encouraging. And this is just another way. Nothing compares to the Word of God. Nothing compares to your Bible. You'll never turn on the History Channel and somebody will tell you that. Ever. Alright? The Bible swallows any other book. It is the Word of God. Word of God. There is more textual evidence for the authenticity of the Bible than any other book in history. And I want you to think about this. I want you to think about this. Isn't it interesting that critics who dismiss the Bible and they assault the Bible... You know, one of those guys on, I hate to pick on the History Channel. You know, they stick him on the History Channel and he just, he's got his little bow tie on and his glasses and he just tells you a hundred reasons for why the Word of God can't be reliable. Isn't it hilarious that these same people blindly accept the writings of Plato, Aristotle, Caesar, and every other ancient writer? Isn't that hilarious? The hypocrisy of their position, Okay. I want you to see this. If you throw out the authenticity of the Bible as reliable, then you have to throw out every ancient book before the invention of the printing press. And nobody takes that position. Nobody says that. Okay? That is the hypocrisy of the men who assault the Word of God. It's hypocrisy. So, we have all these manuscripts. We have 50, over 5,600 of them. Really good early manuscripts. And these men take them and they compare them with one another. And something amazing happens. Something awesome happens that should surprise nobody in this room that's a Christian. The amazing thing that happens is they put them all together and they almost say verbatim the exact same thing. Isn't that awesome? 99.5% of these copies are in perfect agreement. If you want to dig into some of these things... Look at, look at some stuff written by, written by Wayne Grudem. He gets into this in his systematic theology, if you want to dig into this. So, think about this. All the copies compared, and 95.5 of these copies, percentage of these copies say the same thing. And, and let's just pause for just a second, okay? Alright, pause. Don't miss your chance to praise God that we have what God wrote. We have what God wrote. We praise God for this. This is His sovereign work in all of history. So now, let's dig in to the 0.5 percentage of those manuscripts that fall into this category we're calling a variant. Okay? Let's dig into this. There are thousands of these manuscripts, and that works to our advantage. Because of the amount of the evidence that we have, we can compare these manuscripts to one another and we know where the errors are. And when I say errors, I mean the errors of the translators. That they translated the copies. Okay, These, The errors in the manuscripts, they don't go back. They're not consistent. 
And so if you have two and a thousand and only two say one thing, you, you've identified the error. We know what was added. We know what was taken away. We know what was miscopied and mistaken for another word. We know that because the amount of evidence that we have, and we have ten times the evidence that anybody else in the world has for our book. So as, we, as they work their way back to the originals, they reconstruct the words of God, and they bleed out some of these scribal errors okay, of these manuscripts, these variants. And because of the number of the manuscripts, we know where the scribal errors occurred. Step number two, that was a long step number one, let's, let's speed up. Step number two of, st- of textual criticism is they examine extra-biblical evidence. And what this means is you have early church leaders in the second and third century, some people call these the anti-Nicene fathers, Okay? And these men wrote literally hundreds and thousands of pages of teachings, of books. And in their works, there's, there's hundreds of quotations from Scripture. And so these scholars, they dive into those writings and they look, for example, at what one of these early church leaders of how he quoted Mark. Does that make sense? And they take that into account. They, it's not as authoritative as the manuscripts, but they weigh that in the evidence of how to determine these variants. And then they also dive into early translations of the Bible. Out of Greek, one of the earliest is into Syriac. Or one of the next is, is uh, the Latin uh, version of Scripture known as the Vulgate. And they look at these, these early translations of Scripture, and they use this to weigh the evidence. And then the final step is that they examine the internal evidence of the variant itself. They're asking questions like, does this follow the writing style of the author? Does this match the context? And they use this information to evaluate the variance. And so, very involved process, and when you put all these together, okay, this is not a group of men chunking a dart at a wall. This is a very involved process. And when you put this all together, the study of these manuscripts, they don't leave us confused about the Word of God. They do the exact opposite, Okay? We don't walk out of this place confused about what God said. They do the exact opposite. We know what God said. We have the Word of God. Alright? Only a small fraction of these variants remain difficult to evaluate. And none, just be comforted by this, none of the variants that are disputed affect Christian doctrine. And There's no doctrine hanging or falling on any of these variants. Okay? Don't let Satan in your, in your mind doing tricks. Today is one of these difficult variants, the ending of Mark, alright? And if you have a modern translation of the English Bible, your translation already tells you that something's going on here. And you say, what do you mean? You got New American Standard, NIV, ESV, uh, even the New King James. They're going to flag you in some way that there's something going on. They're either going to do it with a bracket or a parenthesis or a margin note or a footnote, Okay? The only Bible that I know of that doesn't do this is the King James Version. And the reason the King James Version doesn't do it is that the manuscripts were discovered after the King James was translated. There's no way they could have done this. Okay? So all modern English Bibles tell you something's going on in this passage. Alright? Let's dig into it. Let's examine the passage very fast and then we're going to walk through the passage. The first thing I want you to notice is that the truths found in these passages, they're New Testament truths. Okay? You can find another verse in the Gospels to stick beside almost every one of these except for the little bit about uh, poison in verse 18. Everything in this passage okay, is a New Testament truth. And so the question is not, the main question here is not, are these things true? That's not the main question. The main question is, did Mark say this? Did Mark include this? Okay. When you walk through... These three steps of textual criticism on this passage, the evidence is stacked against this ending of Mark. Let's do that. Step number one. The earliest manuscripts of the Greek New Testament end at verse 8, the one we just read earlier. All right? Uh, Vaticanus and Sinaiticus is the name of that, in case you're curious. Now, the overwhelming majority of scholars who believe the Bible is the Word of God believe that those two are the best New Testament manuscripts that we have. Just presenting the evidence to you. You make your own decision. Okay. Now, other manuscript issue. As you sort through these copies, we just read what's known as the long ending of Mark. But many of your footnotes will flag you that there's actually another ending. We refer to that as the short ending of Mark. And so the fact, 
as you walk through these copies, that two endings show up to this gospel is just another piece of evidence that somebody added this later. Somebody felt the need to finish Mark's gospel. Alright? So the outside evidence, it also points to the same thing. Let's roll through this quick. Early church leaders quote Mark's gospel extensively. Give you some names. Jerome, Clement, Origen, Cyprin, Cyril, and every one of them are silent regarding the long ending Mark. Okay? As early as the 4th century, we have two men who mention this, Justin Martyr and Irenaeus, and then a guy named Eusebius tells us that this is not in the best Greek manuscripts. 4th century. Told us the same thing that we read in most modern English translations today. Alright, last step. Internal evidence. Okay? This is when these men take the variant and they examine itself. You're asking, is this what he said? Does this match the context? Does this match the style? And many, many... Okay, teachers of the Word of God, men who love the Word of God, many have remarked that this passage does not seem consistent with Mark's style. Okay, here's some bullet points. I'll just give these to you. The transition from verse 8 to verse 9 is awkward. Okay, it seems awkward. All right, um, verse 9, second bullet point, verse 9 mentions Mary Magdalene, and it says this detail about her. It says, from whom she had seven demons cast out of her. Okay? Now the thing that's awkward about that is in the, in the paragraph immediately following that verse, she's mentioned three times already. So why do you have to qualify which Mary that you're talking about when everybody reading this gospel in context knows exactly which Mary you're talking about? It seems awkward. Okay? Alright, bullet point number three. In verse eight, the angel tells Mary to expect an appearance in Galilee from Jesus. And then the long ending of Mark records Jerusalem appearances of Christ. It seems awkward that you don't have the Galilean appearance. And then here's the last one. I thought this was probably the best point, all right, of the internal evidence. Um, in these 11 verses, there are 18 Greek words used that Mark never uses anywhere else in his gospel. They're completely new vocabulary for Mark. And so all I'm doing is presenting you the evidence. It's stacked against this passage being in Mark's original gospel. Okay? Now, why is it in your Bible? Why is it in your Bible then? Why do we have, why not just yank it out of there? And this is what I love, okay? It's what I love about our, our Bibles and, and the men of God uh, and the women of God who have gone before us and preserved God's words, all right? Not everyone agrees with what I just said, okay? And I'm fine with that, especially, you know, your King James only crowd. I mean, they're going lose, to lose it over what I just said, okay? Not everyone agrees, and that's fine. You are free to seek the Lord on what you see about this issue. And here's what I love about the translations. They don't decide for you. They don't decide for you. I don't know about you. I don't want anybody deciding for me what's in and what's out. I want you to give me the evidence. I want you to flag me on, on the variance. And I want to seek God. I don't want people yanking things out of my Bible. Does that make sense? And this is just another proof to, 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 to the integrity of the church, like we tell people in our book, we're not sure about this one. We're not, we're not sure about this passage. I love that. Love that. All right, let's quickly walk through the passage. Breaks down like this. The post-resurrection appearances of Jesus in verse 9 through verse 14. And then the gospel mission in verse 15 through verse 18. And then the reign of King Jesus in verse 19 through verse 20. Now, here's what we're not going to do. I would normally go very, very deep into a passage. Just We do that. We want to do that. Okay, Because of what's around this passage, I want to do the exact opposite. I want to stay way up high. Okay, And so there's a lot that I'm not going to say. If you have questions about it, you're more than welcome to ask me because I'm not getting into some of these details Okay, on purpose. All right. So let's start with the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus in verse 9 through verse 14. It says this, and when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven, seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. When they had heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. After these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country. And they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. Afterward, 
He appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at the table. And He rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who saw Him after He is risen. The question is not, is this true? We know it's true. We know that Jesus appeared. We know that He did. In fact, this is reconstructed from 1 Corinthians 15 and and the other gospel. We know this happened. That's not the question. Okay? Ryan covered this extensively last week. That after Jesus was resurrected from the dead, He appeared. He appeared. There were appearances, multiple appearances. I'm not going to dig into that again. I would encourage you to go back and listen to that. Okay? We don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus for no reason. We believe eyewitness credible testimony. Hundreds of people saw Jesus after they stuffed Him in a tomb. They saw Him alive at different times. Hundreds of people. Nothing in all of Scripture is more established than the resurrection. It's the numero uno defense of Christianity. Go back and listen to that message from last week. All right, let's dig into the gospel mission, verse 15 and verse 18. And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. But whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. And they... And if they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will, not lay, they will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. I was not going to mention this, but I'm just going to hit just a couple of things real fast. Okay? Alright? A serious one, and then a not so serious. Serious is this. this. Part of this passage in verse 16 has been abused to teach this doctrine, that you have to be baptized to be saved. See, it says it right there. Okay? And I would just encourage you, finish reading that passage. Finish reading the passage. Okay? And the, and, and, and the flip side of the passage says this. The first side says, he who believes and is baptized will be saved. And then the back side says, whoever does not believe will be condemned. Okay? The back side of the verse tells you that you will be condemned by God, not because you didn't get baptized. Okay? You'll be, you'll be condemned by God because you refuse to believe the gospel. Okay? So this is not teaching that you have to be baptized to be saved. Not even a chapter before this. We see you know, the thief on the cross. He gets saved hanging on the cross just moments before he dies. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says this, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Now how sad would that be if you had to be baptized to be saved and Jesus gave Paul half the mission? Like he got him halfway to heaven. Jesus didn't send me to baptize. You see the hypocrisy there. Okay, just, just throw in that. And that's not even getting into this. This might not even be in the Bible. Okay? All right. Second one. Okay, this is a little, you know, different. You got, you got some cults that have played some games with the end of Mark's gospel. And the, and the, and the one that sticks out the most, probably the most prominent, is the, the snake handlers. Yeah, everybody, it's the joke, you know, like... Um, uh, yeah, okay, so you got these snake handling cults, and they're playing with snakes, and they're saying, you, you know, this is how you know if you really believe. Like, you get bit by a rattlesnake, and, and if you live, you believe, and I guess if you die, you don't, okay? Now, I just, just think about this. Like, your whole theology is based off one verse, and then you get to the end of your life, and it might not even be in, you know? It's like you just base your entire religious system off a verse that might not even be in the Scriptures. That is sad. That is sad. Alright, the only, the only thing in here that I can't get a direct link to anywhere else in the New Testament is the reference to the poison. This, this happens right here, these signs that follow those who believe, this is like a running commentary of the book of Acts. God just confirming the word, confirming the word. He's healing the sick, driving out demons, they're speaking with new tongues. Okay, so the question is not so much, is this true, it's did Mark include it. Does that make sense? Alright. So, no matter where you come down on this passage, here's what I want to end on. Here's what I want to hammer down. We know that after Jesus was raised from the dead, He gave His church a mission. We know that. Alright, I'll read you two passages. Matthew 28, verse 18-20. through 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. 
Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you to the end of the age. We know that Jesus gave His church a mission. We know He did. Luke chapter 24, verse 46 through 49. And He said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. And then He says, You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So I want you to back up for a second. Here's what we've covered so far today. Point number one. We bow down and worship a glorious resurrected Christ. The mouth stopper, the astonishing one. Point number two. You hold in your hands the living in their Word of God. You have what God said. One plus two equals this. Okay? What do you do with the resurrected Christ and the inerrant words of God? You take it to every corner of the earth. And this is the third point on your outline. You pursue the mission of Jesus. The first two points demand this. You have been sent by Jesus on a mission if you're a disciple of Christ. And I want to make some quick observations of this mission. It's a mission rooted in authority. Think about this. Matthew, the first thing he tells us before he tells us to disciple the nations is he says, all authority has been given to me. Ryan did the little camped out on the word all for sin. You know, he went, you know, past, present, future. Just think about that. All means all. All authority has been given to Jesus. This is how He sends us out. There is no higher authority that we will confront than Jesus. He sends us out clothed with His authority. It's a mission rooted in authority. Luke does the same thing, but listen to this. He roots the mission in authority, but he roots it not in the person of Christ, but in the Word of God. He says, thus is it written. It is written that the church of Jesus takes the gospel to the ends of the earth. And you know that Jesus said this over and over and over again in His ministry. These things must happen just as they are written. This is a mission rooted in authority. We go to the nations in the authority of Christ based off the authority of the written Word of God. We, we go to the nations clothed with authority. His command... We know His command. Mark tells us is to preach the gospel. That is a really good summary of the Great Commission. Go into all the earth and preach the gospel to all of creation. Okay? We know that Jesus commanded us to preach the gospel. There are many things that we do in obedience to Jesus. Okay? Husbands, love your wives. Um, children, obey your parents. Okay? There are many commandments in the Scriptures but this mission is very specific. And the mission that's given to the church is to preach the gospel. Matthew says it this way. Disciple all the nations. And Luke says it this way. That you would preach repentance and forgiveness of sins in His name to all nations. That's the mission. Preach the gospel of forgiveness of sins to all nations. Matthew tells us that. And Luke tells us that, that the aim of the Great Commission, the mission of Jesus, is the nations. All nations. This is our mission until Jesus returns. So I just want to pause right here, okay, before we finish up. Disciples of Jesus, what are you doing in your life to get this message of Jesus, the Son of God, slaughtered for sinners, raised from the dead, what are you doing to get this message to the ends of the earth? What does what obedience to the Great Commission look like in your life tomorrow, and then Wednesday, and then Saturday? What are you doing to get the Word out? Okay, And here's the command that Jesus has given to His church until He returns. This is our job. Until He returns, this is our job. Every disciple has a role to play in this mission. Praise God for that, right? 
There's nobody sitting on the sideline. There's no JV in the kingdom of God. Everybody is on mission with Christ. You have a role to play. So the question is this. What are you doing to get the word out? We know that Jesus has given us a mission to accomplish. We're going to come back to that in a minute. Finally, let's look at the reign of King Jesus in verse 19 through 20. It says this, So then the Lord Jesus, after He had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. Alright. We know where Jesus went and we know what He's doing right now. We know where He's at and we know what He's doing. Jesus ascended to heaven. There's three things that happened in that passage. And we know that they're true. The question is not, are they true? The question is, are they in Mark? Okay? We know three things from that passage. Jesus ascends to heaven. Then the second thing happens. He is given dominion. That's called His coronation. He's crowned as King. And then the third thing is, King Jesus rocks back and sits on His throne. And He presently reigns over all that He's made. Jesus reigns. Listen to Daniel 7, verse 13 and 14. This is a fulfillment. Daniel 7, 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like the Son of Man. And He came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before Him. And to Him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And so I want to remind you today that the Jesus that you love, the Jesus that saved you, He reigns over every square inch of His creation. And just to help you get this, God is Creator, everything else is creation. The farthest galaxy that you could even dream of is creation. And Jesus, King Jesus, reigns over every square inch of His creation. Every galaxy and every molecule in your body is under His dominion. His dominion is over all. His Lordship. So I want you to think about this. He really sat down on His throne as King. And then I want us to zone in. What has He been doing on His throne for 2,000 years plus? What has Jesus been doing on His throne? And I, this is how I want to close our time. I want to, this is not the only thing that Jesus has been doing, but this is the work of Christ. The dominion, the sovereign authority of Christ. So I want to get real specific of what Jesus is doing from His throne in our generation. Alright? And I remember hearing Jerry Rankin say this a while back. And this made a big impact on me. So I'm getting this from him and I'm giving it to you. Things that I didn't know. Okay? That made me praise Christ. That made me love Christ. Alright, here we go. I want this to wake you up to the mission of Jesus. And here's what I'm going after. I never want to be somebody in your life saying, Work for the Lord! Work for the Lord! Work for the Lord! I want to invite you into the only story that will ever last, that will ever make sense in light of eternity. I want to show you what God is doing, and now I want to call all of us into, let's get into this mission of Jesus. I don't want to be a law man in your life. I want to exalt Christ. And this is what this does for me. Wake up to the mission of Jesus. We are living in a very unique time in human history. A very unique time. Jesus, as King, is reigning through His church and He is aggressively finishing the Great Commission. Nobody ever told me this until He told me this. That Jesus is finishing His mission in our midst, in our generation. So I want to tell you a story. 1982. I wasn't born then. Uh, almost born, but I wasn't born then. But in 1982, there was a world event. There was a world group that met together. It's called the Lausanne Congress. Okay, And something happened in 1982 at this Congress that greatly affected the Great Commission. And so, by and large, 
I'm talking about the global church. Okay, there's a mind shift, mindset shift. And what happened is that the church at large started to become aware of the nations. Okay, and, and what I mean by that, up to this point, the church had focused in on, on geopolitical states like China or like Russia. Does that make sense? Okay. Now, at this Lausanne Congress, many people point to this as the genesis of this. The church started to become aware of what, what's called the Pantata Ethne. The nations in the Word of God are people groups. Okay? And what that means is we're not talking about China. We're talking about people groups within China, like the Uyghur, the, the Wei, the Han Chinese. Does that make sense? Our mission is specifically to people groups, to nations. And Jesus woke His church up to the mission. Satan had blinded these people groups for years, generations. And he woke his church up to the mission. And then what happens next? It floors me. Jesus woke his church up, 19, mid-80s, and the church responded and radically sharpened its great commission focus to reach the nations with the gospel. And I want this to sink into you. I want this to sink into you. Do you realize this? That more has been done to finish the mission in your life than any other time in church history combined. Combined. Do you, do you understand that? Are you awake to that? That King Jesus reigning on His throne, He's conquering entire people groups with His gospel. I want you to wake up to this. The uniqueness of the generation that you are a part of. I'll give you an example of how this works. Unengaged people group. And when I say that, there's a difference between unreached and unengaged. Unreached, less than 2% evangelical Christian. Unengaged is a step further than that. No known gospel laborers among these people groups. Okay? Are you with me? Alright? So the category is this. Unengaged people groups with over 1 million people. Over 1 million people. In 1995, who was alive in 1995? Almost everybody in the room. This happened in your life. This happened in your life. 1995. 2,100 unengaged people groups on planet Earth. That's almost, that's over 2 billion people. Okay, that's like one third, almost a third of the world population. Five years later, these are all these world congresses of evangelism. Five years later, 2000, the number of unengaged people groups with over a million people goes from 2100 to 457. Five years. In your life, five years, Jesus did that. Fast forward. Fast forward to 2010. It goes... Unengaged people groups with over a million people go from 457 to 30. To 30. 2,000 to 30. And here's my point. You are a part of a generation that Jesus is using to reach the nations with His gospel. It's happening in our life. And it's only a matter of time before Jesus finishes this mission reigning from His throne. And I want us to wake up to this. I want us to wake up that we can be finishers of the mission of God. All nations reach with the glory of the gospel of Christ. I want you to think about this. Unreached people groups, they're reached almost every single year. And I'm telling you, matter of time before this is finished. So think, think we just heard this a couple weeks ago. Last sermon of Jesus on His cross. This is an awesome thing. A reward. May the, may the Lamb who was slain receive the reward for His suffering. And He pulls Himself up from the nails in His body and He screams at us, Church, it's finished. I have accomplished the payment. The payment is paid in full. It's finished. He said that, right? This is mind-blowing that this Christ will be rewarded with an all-nations bride for His suffering. And we, this is going to happen. Okay? That, that very soon, we're going to stand with the global church. We're going to look at the one who said to us, it is finished, and we're going to turn to our Lord and say, Lord, the mission's finished. It's done. It is finished. Mission accomplished. 
This could happen in our generation. This is what Jesus has been doing when He sat down on His throne. He's reconciling the world to Himself. I want us... I thought about this. There was a couple weeks ago when I was helping Dunaway move and some guys in this room were there. And I got there like 10 minutes late and they cleaned out half the stuff before I even got out of the car. And I walk in and I say, man, I feel like that guy that you've seen that guy riding a football game, dog pile. And that's just when everybody jumps and tackles one dude. I said, I feel like that guy that jumps on the dog pile at the very end and then gets up and, you know, it's like, you did, you did none of the work and you're celebrating. What are you doing? All right, here's what I don't want to happen in my life. That King Jesus is moving out and He is conquering and reigning and spreading His gospel. And this aggressive track my whole life. And He's conquering people groups and sending out laborers. And then I don't wake up to this till I'm 65 years old and they're about to put me in the ground. And I, all of a sudden I wake up to the end of my life and I'm like jumping on the dog pile. I have wasted 40 years of my life. I don't want to waste my life not pursuing the mission of Jesus. I don't want to do that. And I know that if you love Christ, you don't either. You don't want to waste your life. You want to get in to this mission. Alright? So this is what we're going for. All of life in every single season laid down in service to Christ. Some of you are 20. Some of you are not 20 yet. What would it look like for you to lay down your 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, everything out in service to Christ? Not wasting your life. What would that look like? This is what we want to go after. Pursuing the mission in every single season of your life. Don't let things swallow the mission of God in your life. Having kids, jobs, different life events, personal health, nothing stop you from doing whatever you can to pursue the mission of Jesus. On mission with Christ in every single season. This is what we're going for. This is what we're going for as a local church. From the day that this church was planted, how many times have we prayed, Lord Jesus, use us like Gideon's army. 300 to route thousands in your name. Glorify yourself among the nations in this church. How many times have we prayed it? God has heard every one of them. And we want to worship Jesus as the resurrected Lord. We have the Word of God and we want to do this. We We want to turn the corner. We want to take this to the nations. Everything that we have, we want to be all in in the mission of God. So we pray, may God help us to be faithful to His mission as a local church. Amen? Amen. Alright, let's pray. Lord, we thank You, God, for meeting with us today. And we pray, Lord, that You would do a work in our hearts, God, that lasts past this moment. Jesus, we pray, God, that You would pierce us, Lord, with Your glory. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters around this room. God, I pray that You would show them Your glory, Lord. I pray, God, that You would, that you would put them on their face, God. Somewhere in this week in a quiet corner, God, that You'd put them on their face and you make them bow down to You as the majestic One, the Holy One. Lord, let none among us be bored with You, God. Arrest our attention. Fill us with Your Holy Spirit. And God, we pray, Lord, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to Your name be glory. We pray, God, that You would use us in this mission, that You would use us among the nations. And we praise You, Lord Jesus, that You are finishing Your mission and You will finish Your mission, Lord. And You're worthy of Your all-nations bride. Lord, we love You. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.